you found the Digging Oak Island podcast, the podcaster's journey to discover the truth behind the Oak Island mystery. Dave McBride, thank you so much for downloading and listening. If you've been listening to and enjoying our podcast, please help out the show by leaving us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, I invite you to join us on Twitter and Facebook. You can follow the show at Digging Oak Island. Before we get started, let me uh, just apologize for the tone of the voice here. I'm dealing with uh, a sinus issue and who knows what else, but uh, so it's, it doesn't sound all that great. I apologize for that, um, and I'll do my best not to make too many crazy edits to allow me the time to cough or sneeze or whatever it is. Uh, well, let me start off with the emails this weekend. You guys really gave me some work to do with this batch of emails, uh, so let's get right to it. Uh, we begin today with a message from Facebook by Scott, who writes, I love listening to your podcast. I really appreciate your numerous comments related to Samuel Ball's hard work, as opposed to just finding treasure, as well as your thoughts related to the possible use of the Swamp Road as infrastructure related to the export of blue clay from the eye of the swamp. Often I've questioned the decisions by the team, which seem to be an abandonment of what the show represents as promising leads. However, I'm really questioning and frustrated as to how the team can drill numerous consecutive holes with wood at 87 feet, and then upon the first drill without wood, seemingly give up on the previous intriguing discoveries in order to investigate the Behringer survey. I know that you have mentioned continuously on the show that when the show doesn't return to an item that was found or discussed, that the viewer can conclude that there was no associated significance. Can we assume that perhaps the team has, through research or some other method, determined that the 87-foot wood in numerous holes was a non, was non-significant. If not, this decision seems extremely difficult to understand strategically. It leads me to conclude either, one, the team is abandoning the 87-foot wood tunnel search as mentioned in my above question, or two, the team is closer to finding the money pit than they are willing or telling the viewer and trying to prolong the search for purposes of continuing the show, or three, we don't have enough information to understand the decision. Although the team has no obligation to tell the viewer 100% of the data they have, I would like to understand such drastic strategic changes. Sorry for any ramblings, but the uh, struggling to understand this and other seemingly un, not, uh, seemingly unstrategic decisions, thanks for all the insight you continue to provide. Scott, I wanted to discuss Scott's question here first um, because, uh, as I'm sure you've, you know, well, let me put it this way. That way we can get my blood pressure up here early and on on the podcast, and then I can calm down and we can get to the rest of the show. Uh, Scott, the simple answer is I have no earthly clue why they decided to abandon the search for this 87-foot tunnel. I think one thing we can say for certain is that you are correct when you say we don't have enough information to understand the decision. I mean, that's obvious, right? I refuse to accept that the reasoning they gave last week's episode is the case. It's so ridiculous, it's almost insulting to the viewer to try and pass that off as a reason. They just wanted to run out of time, or we're going to run out of time or something. That they hit one hole with nothing and just figured, oh, well, I guess that's that, just doesn't seem to make any sense. That's not what happened. We all know that. I mean, if, <laughs> I, but if that's the best they can come up with, <laughs> anyway. The problem with the entire thing, well, there are two problems. One... We know we are getting BS'd a bit, right? And that is never a good thing to do to your loyal fans or for your viewers. I mean, for crying out loud, just come clean. Now, usually I chalk these things up to the editing decisions, uh, thus absolving the team of guilt. Uh, and that could be the case here. I'm not so sure. Um, 
And, and the problem is once we lose faith in the honesty and the veracity of what we hear the cast telling us, well, I mean, that's a slippery slope to series cancellation, right? Then their problem is that the nature, the problem then becomes that nature abhors a vacuum, right? So in, in place of actual answers, we get a lot of speculation. There are tons of potential actual reasons they decided to abandon this project. But at this point, does it really make a difference? I mean, for whatever reason, they concluded the project wasn't important enough to continue. And in the long run, that's all that really matters. Scott, thank you so much for the email. I'm sorry I don't have more for you on this. To be honest, before this week's episode, I was more disappointed with the show than at any other point in the entire eight years I've been watching. Uh, this one hurt, for sure. Uh, but watching Craig, I mean, watching Craig smirk and say it's a time issue really was kind of hard to take. It just looked so forced. But just to give you something of an answer, and again, we're going to get back to this in this episode, and so things will get a little bit better. Let us turn to an email from our friend Jock, who writes, Hi, Dave. Again, fantastic podcast. Uh, thanks for all your personal history. I would love to be in that bar with you talking about this stuff. Uh, need to get more educated, though I was not sure about this supposed tunnel at 87 feet. Do we have an outline where the Dunfield excavation took place? Could this be a log or a beam that was infilled by Dunfield? Okay, let me stop here. Scott, there you go. A very logical explanation here by Jock, right? Absolutely, this is one distinct possibility. Regular listeners might recall a couple of weeks ago when I expressed some kind of small doubts about this finding a little bit. I thought it was exciting, but I thought it was weird that we weren't getting any more evidence of a tunnel other than this wood at 87 feet. Or why were they, and they weren't really explaining how they were coming to the conclusion that this was a tunnel and not just wood. <laughs> Since one beam doesn't make a tunnel, right? So if this is indeed the explanation, Jock, why we can't be told this is kind of the annoying part of the whole thing, right? Anyway, Jock continues on to another subject. One of the, my first jobs as geologist 40 years ago was to help run Carbon-14 Lab at the University of Washington in Seattle. I would go down to California every year to bring back sequoia samples for carbon isotope work. So I was doing elementary dendrochronology. I'll type up some details of how and why some to clear some of the air and address the dating accuracy. That was 40 years ago, and I have to update myself on the new advances. Uh, surely they might have made since I was working there. Stay tuned. Cheers, Jock. Jock, I read that last paragraph only to ensure that you are compelled to actually do that and send us this information. You know, I threw the hat over the wall here, my friend, so let's get it in. Uh, <laughs> once again, listeners are way smarter than the host, so we wait for your information, Jock, and conclusions uh, on this. Uh, thank you, as always, for helping me out there. Okay, back to this decision about the money pit work. Let's go to Lionel, our representative from Portugal, who writes, Hi, Dave. So no Portuguese Templar remarks today, aside from the little bit that I just realized that the first Portuguese admiral uh, was appointed in 1307, the year the Templar fleet was gone from France. Anyway, always looking forward to your podcast, and I bring you an alternative interpretation for the bit that annoyed you in the last episode when they seemingly abandoned the tunnel search after a single failed drill hole. I haven't read that narrative like that at all. When drilling to follow the tunnel, they didn't seem disappointed at not finding the tunnel in that second hole of the episode. It felt like just regular trying and trying again. Some you hit, some you miss. I was just it was just edited and placed there as part of the montage process. What is new is that in the war room, they mentioned at some point that the tunnel they have found may be part of the Behringer survey interpreted as a tunnel. So they have an expectation of how long it is and about its direction from the picture, which is angling remarkably eerily to where the stone road seems to be moving upland. And we also see that it goes across the borders of the circle of the Dunfield dig cone. 
which means a long section of the conflicting drills ahead in the direction until you get past the drill cone. Remember, as you say, they are collecting data for the big dig. Having an explanation of where the tunnel may be leading and how long it may be may, <laughs> may be may proceed from the Behringer survey and realizing that several confounding holes lie in the most immediate vicinity of the location. It makes sense that such a line of effort at the end of the season wouldn't be all that informative. And the foliage and clothing do seem to indicate this was late in late September or early October, that's for sure. So it makes sense to some to take some final pot shots to explore some of the Behringer hits. Why start with Smith's Cove is indeed perplexing, but it's, it is interesting as at least one of those hits lies in the straight line from the box drains location in the cave and pit, a location of tunneling they haven't pursued for a while. Perhaps they are connecting some dots. I just wish they'd tell us that, Lena, right? Anyway, he continues. One thing that seems to be lining up is the road is leading to the uplands, but there is no mention of it angling up. If it isn't climbing, it'll have to eventually become more of a ditch than a road, possibly leading into a tunnel entrance, possibly too wishful thinking, but nonetheless enticing. Unlike all the complaints about a low season, this and the last one were among the best for me. Little pieces, but solid archaeology, solid evidence of something serious happening, guarantee that significant, uh, significant knowledge will be found, and an actual treasure for me would be just a pipe dream. But discovering something novel and significant in the history of that region, that for me is the exciting part. Keep up the good work, Leonel. Well, Leonel, um, thank you for that. Uh, that all makes sense, and I've said from the beginning that I hope to hell this was all just a really bad editing decision. And to help bring my blood pressure down a little bit even more, let's take Lionel's email along with this one from a listener named Daniel who says, I'm sitting here waiting for the new episode to start, and I was thinking about your comments about the abandoning of the chasing the 87-foot tunnel and drilling some non-ferrous targets by Smith's Cove. I was surprised by your comments because when Marty and Craig came up with this, I was totally on board. I think what you're not realizing is that there is only a couple of weeks left. They are going for a Hail Mary pass. Yes, they could keep going and get some more data for next year, but they want some spendables, a long shot for some gold. I say, hell yeah. Let's end the season with the, the year with a bang. They can always get back to drudgery of chasing wood next year. Can't wait for the off-season podcast. Well, thank you, Daniel. Um, I will only say this. It looks like you may indeed be correct here. I still think this was a terrible move, but more on that in the episode review. So stay tuned. So let's keep this 87-foot tunnel in discussion just without Dave getting all salty, and turn now to our friend Jeff, who writes, Hey, Dave, how's it going? Just listened to the latest podcast. Excellent show. Thank you, sir. I agree. I appreciate the show extending things out as much as possible to give us a full season. It's one of the few things I really look forward to. Plus, it allows more episodes of your pod. <laughs> so my question is about the 87-foot tunnel. Has there been any speculation as far as the correlation between the 87-foot tunnel and the 90-foot stone? Also, instead of drilling numerous small holes, possibly damaging it, wouldn't it be more prudent to drill one hole large enough to lower someone down into, perhaps Jack, who then could crawl through it and see where it goes, maybe even strap a camera to his forehead? Oh, that sounds pretty dangerous. Do you think it's possible that the mysterious 87-foot tunnel leads to the mysterious stone road, and the mysterious stone road leads to the mysterious 87-foot tunnel? Could it be? I'm just kidding. Uh, only a couple of episodes left. I hope we get some answers soon, and uh, once the season ends, I'll have a void in my weekly schedule. I'll check out your other pod. What's the name of it again? Thanks, Dave. Cheers, Jeff. Well, since you asked, sit-downs and sessions. 
find it anywhere you get your podcast. But remember, this podcast does not stop in the off season. We will certainly take a break so I can do some research and hopefully book some interviews. But uh, we will continue to be posting shows throughout the late spring into the summer and until season nine starts in the fall. Okay. I think you're being a little bit cheeky, certainly with some of this, uh, you know, mysterious tunnel leads to the mysterious road and the mysterious road leads to the mysterious tunnel. But as far as why they don't don't dig a deeper, a bigger hole, that one's easy. They're not able to get those companies that have that gear and that wherewithal, you know, to do that kind of stuff on the island last summer due to COVID. That's why we haven't seen the giant cans and the hammer grabs this year. Again, this has all been a huge challenge to make the, this kind of, you know, this this season one like the ones we've been used to recently. Jeff, thanks as always. He always writes me some funny stuff during the shows, too. Let's go now to an email from Joshua, who writes, Hello, very engaging podcast. First email from a longtime listener. I'm a longtime Northeastern American history buff. My family descends from the Boston Brahmin. Uh, I think I say that right. Ma- many members that... The Boston Brahmin is like the Boston uh, elite of... of Yes, of years past, you know, and I think I say that word right. Anyway, many members kept journals, and since childhood, I was hooked on the early history of the Northeast, mostly interested in 1600 to 1800 history of the New England and Nova Scotia. Nova Scotia, New England shared history is not in vogue, but is at the foundation of two nations, Canada and America. Getting to the point, 1600 to 1800 Nova Scotia, New England attachments were at their heights. The human players were the French, the Mi'kmaq Indians, uh, New Englanders, the Scottish, the Dutch. The French and Scottish built forts that required mining of raw materials. Large amounts of coal, clay, and ore were needed to build forts. The military engineers of what of that time and place were the were among the most capable in the world. Question: Why couldn't the Oak Island mystery be explained by military mining or military engineering? The time period the show seems to be to be driving down to, 1600 to 1800, is full of large-scale military fortifications and emplacements during that time and place, and Nova Scotia was full of great engineers and all experts and easily had the skills needed to tunnel, mine, and build things of this scale on Oak Island. Very respectfully, Joshua. Well, Joshua, it absolutely could be of military origin. We see the, the uh, team kind of heading towards that, too. Have you read Oak Island Mystery Solved by Joy Steele and Gordon Fader? Um, you can find it on Amazon or anywhere you get books. Um, I think the theory in that book will be very interesting for someone thinking about this the way you are here in this email. So I check that out. So sure, it could very well be military. There clearly is a lot of evidence for that. But, and Steele and Fader posit this as well, if it is indeed the work of a military organization, it would have had to have been a very secret and clandestine operation, since there are no records of it. Even rumors are scarce at best of anything happening in this kind of area. Great stuff, Joshua. Keep those emails coming. Let's head now across the pond to Gary in England who writes, Hi, Dave. I have recently come across your podcast and have tuned into the last three or four episodes, which I really enjoyed. I've been a regular viewer of The Curse of Oak Island and have known about the mystery for many years. I have no idea if treasure has been hidden on Oak Island, but I'm interested in the search itself and the related research. Like a lot of people, I have become infuriated with the narration and the constant repetition. I understand your point regarding having to stretch the programs out to fill the schedule, but there are other ways to achieve this, and and an entertainment element of the program is suffering. Let me stop here. Uh, Gary, you're correct. Keep listening. After the season's over, I'm going to do a little wrap-up podcast for Season 8, and we'll discuss this kind of thing and a lot more. So stay, stay tuned on that, and I'll answer that later on. Now... 
He, Gary continues, on to some specific problems I have with the current series. I'm an amateur archaeologist residing in New Yorkshire, England. I've been on many digs and have been taking an interest in the archaeological dig being carried out on the supposed road in the swamp. Now, I understand that the producers may have taken the decision not to include the day-to-day activities of the dig, probably considered too boring. But I have been stuck, struck by the lack of evidence of tools used in any standard archaeological dig. Visit any dig site you like, and you will find trays, tape measures, planning frames, surveying equipment, ranging poles, etc. And what about the photographic record? Archaeology is a destructive process, and you must record as much as possible of the site as you progress. If they truly thought this was a road they were excavating, which have which they have not dug... A, a, if they, I gotta say that all again. I'm telling you, I'm barely making it through this. If they truly thought this was a road they have, they were excavating. Why have they not dug a sondage? This is a trench dug across the road, which will show the stages of construction in the section. I'm also more than a little suspicious of the lack of artifacts the dig is uncovering, and which they mentioned this week. Strange how Gary is finding plenty of metal elsewhere. But nothing, apart from a few pieces of ceramic, which they choose not to date on error, Victorian, I would say, over here. Okay, Gary goes on to talk about the C-14 comparison data, but we're going to get to that later on in, this, you know, in the off-season and get some more into that. So, um, Gary, with regards to your questioning about the archaeologists, let me just say this. I'm not an archaeologist, I'm a podcaster, but at the moment, I have no reason to doubt the skills, or I had no reason to doubt the skills on, of the, those on the show who are archaeologists. But the thing is... I do know one. Perhaps you've heard of him. His name is Laird Niven. So I sent your question to Laird, and here is his response. Quote, have to agree. My time was mostly spent excavating the ball site, where we did have all of that. The notes, photography, and other recording in the swamp was all up to Aaron Taylor. That being said, I did do a 3D model of the stone road with the drone, but he didn't use that. So we do use the equipment he just chose not to. We did do a small one by three meter test pit in the middle of the road, but I don't know why they didn't trench it. My work also is done under permit, where the swamp work was not. That's a big difference, right? Mine has to be peer reviewed before I can get another permit. So there you go. The two archaeologists I know, Laird Niven and you, Gary, seem to agree. I think I would also add, when it comes to this work, like almost all of the work done on the island... You can bet you are only seeing a small portion of what is actually being done. Perhaps, since this is not the same kind of project as Laird's with the same restrictions and the same rules and stuff, the team has the opportunity to clean up the site before the television cameras come or that kind of thing. Who knows? Gary, your insight is terrific and well appreciated. Please keep it coming. Fascinating to hear from someone who's done that kind of work. And also a big thank you to Laird again for helping out here and giving us a great answer to this question. So let's go now to Sam, who writes, Dave, first, I'm enjoying your podcast. I look forward to it each week, even more than the show, to be honest. Oh, come on now. A question. I have read other blogs about Oak Island, and some of these mention fishing as a key activity that probably took place near Oak Island, that area being one of the world's best for fishing. It would seem to make good sense that the structures in Smith's Cove, as well as the Swamp Road, could have been used to unload, process, and reload fishing for shipping to Europe. Could the burned areas have been due to fires used to boil seawater for the salt necessary to preserve fish? I would appreciate your views on this. And if you would, and if you have already covered this in the past episode, please accept my apologies for bringing this up again. Uh, regards, Sam. Sam, no, we haven't. Um, 
at least not that I remember, so it's worth getting out again here. Uh, when we think about what could have happened here, right? What pre-1750s or so event involving Europeans in the area that could have gone undocumented and lost to history, fishing absolutely needs to be on that list, plain and simple. To a certain degree, fishing is the reason Europeans came and took over North America, right? It's the reason the early settlers came, and more importantly, it's the reason they stayed. Because the area of North America that is closest to Europe is this area, Atlantic Canada, Newfoundland, Nova Scotia, all the way down to Cape Cod. And the fact that this wasn't the nearest place, that this was the nearest place, and it had the most plentiful fishing grounds anywhere anyone had ever seen, right, is essentially the reason why this part of the world looks the way it does. If they came here and found nothing but frozen plains and a few moose, it's hard to imagine they would have stayed very long. My point is, your train of thought here is spot on. We just need to see some more evidence to conclude whether it's right or wrong. And listen, treasure hunters and clandestine military operations are much sexier than an old, fairly unremarkable fishing outpost, right? So that's what you're going to hear about on the show. Great email, my friend. That's it for the emails. Uh, That's all I can really read here today. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to get to Season 8, Episode 21. Again, thank you so much for the great emails this week. Anyway, let's talk now about Season 8, Episode 21 of The Curse of Oak Island called Off the Railings. Let's begin over at Smith's Cove. There's only a couple of places here. Smith's Cove, uh, we'll start with, where Rick and Steve Guptill are heading over to uh, follow this Behringer survey lead, uh, this old survey that Dan Blankenship had. Now, now, the weird thing is the narrator says Dan Blankenship, quote, did not have the resources to pursue these targets when the data was first obtained, end quote. I'm not so sure I believe that, but whatever. Uh, Terry and Charles are leading this expedition over here now, too, uh, just as they were at the Money Pit. Later on in the episode, we see the first drilling samples coming up. Um, They're looking for an apparent tunnel. Um, Did I mishear that? I thought they were looking for these non-ferrous targets. But anyway, Rick says he wants to confirm a tunnel instead. Really makes the move kind of even stranger. Anyway, later we head back to Smith's Cove for a new hole, which is right on the water's edge of the beach, right right, right by the beach. I love how the narrator says they're looking for a, quote, stockpile of precious metals. <laughs> Aren't we all? Uh, after drilling, Terry says, quote, unfortunately, I don't see anything other than Mother Nature here, end quote. After the commercial break, then, we go to a war room meeting about the failure at Smith's Cove. Uh, So basically, they drilled a couple of holes. They found nothing. In fact, they found evidence as to why the survey may have falsely read a tunnel and instead read something else, right? So that changes the whole thing. So anyway, we go to this war room meeting, and we're discussing here now instead what what we're going to do now that we've had this failure. Doug says, um, well, he says to do this full justice, this this Behringer survey, Smith's Cove thing, they would have had to have dug 16 holes. And then he calls the whole thing a Hail Mary to begin with. So what they do is they decide to stop this work and go back to the money pit. Now, honestly, I really don't know what to say about this. I guess the best thing anyone could say is what our listener Daniel said earlier when he called this a long shot for some gold. So, okay. 
I'm going to lay off on it now. Um, I won't say this all looked like a half-assed attempt to begin with or point out how maybe a little more research might have been in order before moving the drill away from following a lead that they had and were on to, or even how many how now they're even more limited on time to work in the money pit than they were before they made this change. I'm not going to say any of those things. <laughs> I'll just say, yes, it was a Hail Mary, and the ball landed incomplete in the end zone for sure. Now, I know I'm rushing through this season, this episode, folks, but like I said, I'm barely hanging on here with my uh, <laughs> my health situation. I just don't feel very well at all. Um, so let's head over to the swamp. The episode begins with Alex Lagina, Miriam Amaralt, and Aaron Taylor following the swamp road again. Now, this is kind of a weird scene. They're basically talking about finding evidence of a curve in the road heading towards the east. And I honestly thought they had already found that evidence. Again, we don't really get a good vision, visuals of what they see and what they're saying, so it's hard to know. Anyway, we didn't learn too much from the scene. Later on, Gary and David Frenetti come to detect along with Billy Gerhardt on his excavator. Marty really sums up my feelings here on this when he says that even if they find where this road leads, that will, quote, only lead to more questions than answers. And he calls it nothing more than a, quote, indirect indicator of potential treasure. And that's what I've been saying from the beginning. This is fascinating work, but when it's all said and done, we know what this road is. It's really not going to tell us anything more about what might've been done treasure wise. It may give us an answer as to what this was, but we just, it it, it doesn't seem like it, uh, you know, Marty seems to be thinking along my lines here. So while detecting Gary finds an old button, he thinks it's 18th or 19th century military button. I'm not 100% sure what about it looks military, but he would know better than me. So let's see if we get a follow-up on that one. We didn't on this show, so who knows? Rick and Doug come to see what's going on. Uh, Gary finds during this scene another piece of old iron. He thinks it might be from an old fire grate. Now I have to say, what impressed me was he finds this hit. And then Miriam Amaral goes down like in her with her trowel and moves some stuff and then just sees it and picks it right out. Like it just looked like a rock. It, it was pretty. Yeah. Let me say this. Maybe Gary needs her from now on to follow him around other than one of these dudes with a shovel. Anyway, again, no follow up on this little piece of fire. grate. It's another artifact that's being found. We don't really know what it was. If we don't get a follow up on it. Then once again, it's really not much to worry about as far as evidence for what might be going on here. Later on, Marty and Laird Niven head to meet Doug Kroll in the Interpretive Center, where Doug shows them some old artifact that Dan Blankenship had found in the swamp, pulled out of his files. I have to mention this. I'm starting to hear people say things like, uh, why was Dan hiding all this stuff? Well, first of all, hiding might be an overstatement, or he might have found these things and were not worth his time, you know, what he thought, whatever he thought it might be. But you know what, folks? The better answer is, welcome to the world of treasure hunters. Partners or not. Treasure hunters keep things close to the vest, always. And the fact that Dan Blankenship may have had a few things hiding in the files that he didn't want to tell anybody about, that's just the way that works, man. That's just the way this goes. Anyway, Doug shows them a bag, and on the bag it says, found in the swamp by Dan Blankenship in the 1970s. And then he pulls out this really heavy-duty square piece of iron. It looked at first to me like a hinge, right, like a latch. Uh, but when you got a better look at it, you realized it wasn't hinged. It wasn't, it wasn't flexible. And that couldn't be what it was. Laird says, I'm thinking it's forged. And, um, you know, uh, they are, we'll follow up on this in just a second. Uh, later on in the show, we see Miriam Amaral to find what she thinks is a piece of a gun flint. 
right, that they look at. It's just a little tiny piece of a gun flint. Another p- bit of military thing for you folks there. I just wanted to mention that because, again, another one of these things like the like the great and uh, what was the first thing he found? Oh, yeah, the button um, that we didn't get really any follow-up on. But, I mean, this they would know what a flint looks like. Anyway, let's go back to this piece of whatever this was that was in Dan's files. Doug and Kroll and Scott Barlow take it up um, to Carmen Leg. Leg says, quote, that construction, layered metal, which is not iron or steel, is very, very old technique. And then he thinks that it came from off of a cannon and a, quote unquote, fairly big one. Interesting. He also thinks the construction looks 15th century. Amazing. Why would there be a 15th century cannon here? Incredible. But he also says this, and I love this, quote, I'm curious as to where the rest of it is. Me too, Carmen. How are you finding just one piece? Where's the rest of it? That'd be cool to find. This really is something interesting. A 15th century cannon should not be the bottom of the swamp in Oak Island. But it doesn't mean it is. It only means right now that a piece is. God, it'd be great if they found the rest of it. Anyway, Scott and Doug then head back to Oak Island. They meet up with Marty to tell him what Carmen Leg said. Marty then suggests that perhaps Dan Blankenship didn't think much of it because maybe it just didn't fit into his idea of what Oak Island was about. Marty then says, quote, let's get into the hands of an armament expert. Boy, God, I hope they do that. Because if they do confirm at least that this is what it is, man, what a cool little find. I mean, I know it's not treasure, but boy, I find that fascinating. The show then, right after the scene, goes back to the dig in the swamp, and Gary's detecting again. He finds a piece of pottery that Taylor calls a transfer print and says it's French from the 1760s. Now, can someone tell me, this was definitely weird editing, how Gary's metal detector getting something which he said a little squeaky piece of iron led him to finding a piece of pottery? Where's the squeaky piece of iron? I was very confused by all this. Anyway, later we see the team digging with Billy in the massive swamp with this that massive swamp excavator, really cool piece of machinery. They're basically removing all the swampy muck, and what they're trying to do is get to the bottom of the swamp, right? It makes a lot of sense. They're surveying it too. Billy hits something. Something so tough that it causes the whole excavator to really struggle while trying to dig through whatever's down there. Billy says it's not the bottom. He's he's hitting something. You know, he even says something like I'm not kidding. I'm, I'm I don't know what this is. So they dig, get finally get a bucket of mud out and then Doug Kroll pulls out a piece of wood out of a bucket and later another the same type same looking piece of wood. From looking at it this is clearly a finished piece of wood. What it's from and where, I have no idea, but it is sanded and finished, maybe even even stained of some kind. It is it is it is not natural. And this is amazing because this was like nine feet deep under layers, feet worth of dirt and muck. And Gary points out that there is a hole in it, and perhaps it's a square hole, which then would make it older since we haven't used squared nails in a long time. So if it was used to, you know, to be nailed into something and it was used with a square nail, you know, it is old. Very speculative right now. It's hard to say. What we need is this cleaned up and we need to get into this area and find out what this is because this little piece of wood is not what was keeping Billy's excavator from digging. There's something else there. Now, could be just a rock. Could be bad editing. Who knows? We'll find out, but we need to find out. And that's very exciting. After so many criticisms this season from me and so many of the fans, I have to say, 
I really like this episode. The artifact from Dan's file, this chunk of wood at 10 feet under the mud of the swamp. This is why we watch. Okay, no, you're sick of hearing me say it, but I'm, uh, that's it for this episode of the Digging Oak Island podcast. Can't do much more. And another shameless plug for you. Uh, don't forget, I produce another podcast called Sit Downs and Sessions. Me and my friend and radio host Chris Poe sit down over a drink or two. We talk about pubs, music, politics, the paranormal, all that kind of stuff. Uh, give it a listen. You can find it, Sit Downs and Sessions, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your usual podcast places, you know, that kind of thing. Also, if you're enjoying Digging Oak Island, I ask you to please give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And a big thank you to everyone who has left us a five-star rating already. I really do appreciate it. Thank you for taking the time to do that. And thank you especially for the kind words. Don't forget, you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter. Go to your search bar and type in at Diggin' Oak Island and you'll find us. Give us a like or a follow there. It'd be great. And again, if you have any questions or comments that you want to send directly to me, you can do so via email at island at gmail.com. Just keep in mind... If you do send me an email or a direct message on social media, keep in mind it may just answer it here on the podcast. So if you don't want your message read aloud to all the audience, just please make a note of that for me. So until we speak again, I'm Dave McBride. Thank you for listening to Dig It Oak Island.